Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And we are joined by our colleague, Dan Balzerak. Dan is the Director for Religious Liberty here at the USCCB. Um, he works here in the General Counsel's Office. And um, so he's here today to talk to us about something we are really excited about. In fact, it's an exciting week at the Bishops' Conference. We got there's a lot going on. There's, there's a, a lot, lot going there's on. A We've lot got going on. Yep. March for Life um, coming up. So everything surrounding surrounding the the March for Life events. Um, but for our office in Religious Liberty, we are really excited about our first ever annual report. It was just published on January 16th, which is National Religious Freedom Day. And so Dan is here to talk to us about uh, the annual report. Dan, thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to talk about it. Yeah. Well, so you're probably happy to you'll probably be happy to stop talking about it since this is like all you've been thinking about for the past few months. Um, it's great though. It's uh, it's awesome. It is pretty. It's a pretty impressive piece of work. Um, first, so tell us like. What is it? What is the annual report? What does it cover? Just give us a, a brief overview first. Right. So the Committee for Religious Liberty at the USCCB does uh, you know, a lot of public advocacy. And as part of that, we all often produce these sort of internal reports for the bishops and for each other, uh, for other committees. But we have never produced a public annual report aimed at average citizens who are interested in religious liberty, um, policymakers in the religious liberty space generally. Uh, so that's what this is. It's a 48-page report on the state of religious liberty in the United States. And, and the length is almost a selling point to me. It, it, it's almost the message because there's just so much going on that it took that long to catalog all the different ways that religious liberty is um, under pressure, under threat here in the United States. So it reviews developments in religious liberty over last year, 2023, uh, sort of broken up and categorized by uh, the area, um, you know, religious liberty at the Supreme Court, religious liberty in Congress, um, religious liberty in the ex executive branch, the White House, um, as well as looking at cultural trends. And then sort of building on that, looks ahead at this coming year, 2024, uh, offers some predictions on where we can expect the sort of more notable developments in religious liberty, and then closes by offering a list of the five biggest threats we foresee to religious liberty in the U.S. Uh, in 2024 and offers some recommendations on how, uh, how we can respond, how the average person who cares about religious liberty can respond, and how Congress and other uh, uh, elected officials and bureaucrats can respond. Well, not to, you know, it, it is 48 pages, but I found it actually very easy to flip through. I mean, this, the, the way that it's all set up with the flipping book, right? There's, it's really easy to access the different parts and it's really well organized. So the executive summary in the front, like if people don't have time to read the whole thing, like uh, there, it's just so, so easy to access. So well done on like, I don't know where you found this, but I want to, I want to use this for our stuff too. This is great. So yeah, 
it's it's the executive summary is just a great um, kind of overview of all the different just the big picture. Yeah, I got to say, I sort of expected that a lot of people would just sort of flip to the end. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, and I'm about to flip to the end by asking you, like, what? I mean, that that's, I think, probably what most people are going to want to do is to, they're going to want to know, well, the, the USECB Committee for Religious Liberty says they've got five top concerns. You know, what are those top five? But it, before you answer that, I mean, it is important that we have everything documented so that I think it's easy to read in to read just a, a news headline and think well this is all the bishops care about why didn't they say anything about this or that but like you know encourage people to to read the whole thing because there's a lot like every more all every regulation <laughs> you you might think yeah you, even stuff you would have never thought of well and even just the explanation of the committee I mean it's you know I just the history of it is important too and why this matters because I think a lot of people in their busy lives can get overwhelmed with just like oh wow you know all just their their daily busy lives of getting the kids to school and getting to work and paying the bills and this is so important I mean this really impacts people's lives and the threats are real and yeah it it's so I think it's helpful to show people demonstrate like this is this matters and this is this is coming up and we've mm. all got to do something about it. And the explanation of like the duties, the responsibilities that we have to get involved. So, mm-hmm. well, so yeah. So what are those top five concerns? Maybe I'll, I'll make this dramatic and I'll go from number five to number oh. one. Oh, there yeah. we go. Oh, countdown. Oh, this is kind of David Letterman style. I like this. Yes. So uh, we rank them one to five, but I'll start with number five. Uh, number five, or the, the fifth biggest threat in 2024 is the forthcoming regulations uh, from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, on the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. Um, Going to try to make a long story short here. Bottom line is the regulations take what Congress meant to be a pro-life, pro-woman law and sort of write an abortion-related requirement into that law for no good reason. There's no basis in the law for it. But the main way it harms the preborn and, and, and mothers, but also the, the employers to whom the regulation applies, is it would require employers to grant paid leave to mothers for the purpose of seeking an abortion. Um, so that's a degree of complicity in you know, even second, third trimester abortions that the government has never uh, imposed before. This is, it's an un, sort of an unprecedented way that the government is trying to, to force people to facilitate abortion. Number four is less discreet but still a very real threat, which is the suppression of religious speech on um, marriage and on sexual difference or uh, human sexuality. So, you know, this comes up in all kinds of ways. Um, There's a, a social component to it where people of faith are just afraid in their workplace or at a neighborhood barbecue or whatever to speak their mind, to say what they actually think about the nature of marriage or about gender identity issues, transgender issues. Uh, 
But there are also legal threats to that. So again, one of them is coming from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Uh, they, they're in charge of enforcing workplace non-discrimination laws, including harassment, anti-harassment laws. And they put out guidance saying basically any workplace speech that offends another person on issues of marriage or human sexuality is harassment, which is just crazy. One one can imagine you can harass people about all sorts of stuff. There's, there's conduct that is harassment, but just voicing a religious belief is not. But the EEOC says, well, no, it is. And there are a number of other sort of legal mechanisms that we talk about in the report that sort of do this, that, that create incentives for people of faith to say, stay silent on, on these beliefs. Um, number three is threats to religious charities serving immigrants, migrants, newcomers, refugees, asylum seekers. Those threats are both legal and physical. Congress has, uh, the House has passed a bill that imposes a, just a sort of uh, archetypal religious liberty uh, problem for religious charities serving migrants, where it says, if you facilitate or encourage unlawful entry, we're going to deny you unlawful entry into the United States. We're going to deny you all funds, or federal funds. Now, it does sound on the face of it, yeah, we don't want people encouraging or facilitating illegal conduct. But the way the supporters of the bill interpret that, what they mean is if you give an immigrant a bottle of water in the desert, or if you give a, a hungry immigrant a meal, that's facilitating or encouraging illegal entry into the U.S., uh, just meeting their basic human needs when they're already here. So that, I mean, we we have a gospel call to do that, and threatening us with a penalty for doing so is just sort of a classic way to, to pressure, to coerce people into not living out their beliefs. Number two is another regulation, um, this one out of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Loyal listeners to the podcast may have heard of it before, it's the Section 1557 regulation, which in essence imposes a mandate to perform uh, gender transition procedures. If you're a healthcare professional, healthcare worker um, who, say, is involved in performing mastectomies for breast cancer or hysterectomies for uterine cancer, then the regulation says, well, you've got to do those for gender transitions too. And there's also a sort of wild card. This is a proposed rule. It hasn't been finalized yet. In the proposed rule, there's a, this sort of wild card about abortion where they signaled in this in the final rule when we make it binding on everybody and write, write, the, write it into law, we might impose the exact same requirements with regard to abortion. Um, so if, you, if you're a OB-GYN who performs DNCs for for miscarriages, then you have to do them for elective abortions too. Um, similarly, this applies to insurance coverage. So you got to, if you're an employer, you got to cover these things in your health plan. And abortion, so the gender transition part, HHS already tried that back in 2016. So that's not new. They're just sort of revisiting and reimposing that. 
um, the abortion part would be brand new and would be really a nuclear option. You know, there has never been a mandate in federal law to perform abortions. That that is would you know escalate things to just a whole new level. And number one is attacks on houses of worship. Oh, that was your. Yes, my, sorry. Drum roll. <laughs> okay. Drum roll. Like a tax is in first. What, oh, I, sorry. I, I, it sounded like you said a tax, yes. which that would be bad too. Literally, like. But no, a t t a c s. Yes, violence. Physical assaults, attacks, assaults, physical assaults on houses of worship. There's context here, from a couple different angles. First. The Committee for Religious Liberty has been tracking vandalism, arson, and other sorts of property crimes at uh, Catholic churches uh, for a couple years now. Um, and it's happening at a pretty alarming rate. The Dobbs decision, uh, the Supreme Court's ruling on abortion in Dobbs, generated a sort of new wave of it that also sort of shifted away from churches toward pregnancy resource centers. The, the classic vandalism was people spray painting a, a pregnancy resource center with the slogan, if abortion isn't safe, then neither are you. So we sort of foresee that continuing, uh, especially in an election year where abortion is going to be a major issue um, in the election and sort of anger toward, toward pro-life organizations, pro-life people is emphasized or, or sort of reinvigorated. But what really, oh, sorry, there, there's a, also another Catholic-specific or Christian-specific angle here, which is I talked about threats to, to religious charities, um, and I said legal and physical. I forgot about the physical part. Immigration is obviously a really hot-button issue. People feel very, very strongly about it. I think there are, you know, there are some certainly some some racist motivations behind some of the opposition to immigration. Not everyone who thinks we should have a stronger border is racist, but there are certainly some people who you know, that that's that's part of what's going on. And these extraordinarily intense feelings about immigration have generated these bizarre sort of outlandish theories and conspiracy theories about what the Catholic Church is doing. We've been accused of awful stuff, like being complicit in sex trafficking of minors, com being complicit in the drug trade, uh, being uh, being motivated by a desire to replace, the, 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 sort of the great replacement theory, being motivated by a desire to, to replace the, the white majority um, with predominantly Catholic Hispanics, and being motivated by money. That's a common accusation that we're just in it for the money. It's demonstrably false. We every every year, you know, we spend more on our service to migrants than we get from the federal government. Nonetheless, that that's made people very angry. And eventually, last year, that culminated in a guy on I mean, one of these uh, shock jockey online personalities with nine hundred thousand followers on social media telling his followers that I think the best first step, he said, in solving the immigration problem was for them to shoot everyone involved with Catholic charities. So an explicit call for murder 
of people trying to serve migrants. So there's a sort of threat from from the left, so to speak, against Catholic churches and, and Christian pregnancy resource centers, pro-life pregnancy resource centers over abortion. And then from the right, so to speak, there's a threat over immigration-related concerns. But what really put this over the top and made it the bishop, the committee's number one problem was the Israel-Hamas conflict and the energy, the sort of intensity that that has uh, injected into lingering, simmering anti-Semitism, especially, but also anti-Muslim sentiment. You know, one of the first domestic fatalities in this issue, over this issue, was a, a guy who goes to a Catholic parish in um, in the Chicago area who murdered a, a Palestinian boy because of his feelings about the Israel-Hamas conflict. There are, you know, if you watch the news, there are people marching in the streets calling for the extermination of the Jewish race. So the possibility of a terrorist attack on a synagogue, especially, uh, is just obviously elevated. Uh, and if you can't feel safe in your house of worship, you know, that's a religious liberty problem and probably the most basic one there is. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is where it crosses over. I mean, you know, this is in your department, there's attorneys and policy folks and all of that. But this is really I mean, this is this crosses over into cultural, social, political, all those issues, you know. And so this is this is where I think people can be. It's unquestionably a matter of this, this, this is impacting people's daily lives. And so as I was preparing for this podcast, which uh, sometimes I don't always do, but anyway, I was looking back in on, you know, I, I actually went back and read the Constitution. And I'm like, what exactly does, well, the Bill of Rights technically, but what does it say? And, and what struck me is it says Congress, right? So some of these issues that you're bringing up, a lot of them have to do with not not Congress, not that branch of our government, but um, the administration. We're talking about federal agencies who are under, you know, the authority of um, the presidential administration. So I guess my question is what, you know, what is the crossover there? How can, if this is not, you know, Congress, right, then what is the, what is the check? What is the check constitutionally, legally on, on these threats that are, being set up and proposed and being yeah. implemented. So it's notable that there's not an act of Congress or a proposed act of Congress that is no act of Congress by in and of itself is one of our top threats. It's an element of the threats to, to charities serving, serving migrants. But Congress can't do a whole lot these days because it's so deeply divided. Mm. Congress just can't do a whole lot these days. They're just so deeply divided that it's hard for them to get enough votes to pass a bill. And especially when it has to do with something that affects religious liberty, where partisan divisions are especially high. Um, so what you end up is the exec- uh, end up with is the executive branch, so the White House and federal agencies picking up the ball or, or filling in where Congress doesn't act. So they issue these regulations that increasingly take these increasingly strained views of what the law means. So that's the, there was just yesterday oral arguments in the case in front of the Supreme Court about the power that federal agencies have to interpret the law. Should courts defer to federal agencies 
or should courts really just say, it's, uh, we, we, we'll give you, we'll hear what you have to say, federal agencies, but really it's up to us to say what the law means. So a lot of these threats that we talk about in the report are in fact coming from the executive branch um, in the form of regulations, especially. And, you know, the Constitution applies there, too. You know, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It'd be really embarrassing if I got that wrong. <laughs> um, so when, when federal agencies are interpreting and implementing the law, you know, the, the Constitution applies to their interpretations of the law. So that it's a check on what they do. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act is a statute as opposed to an element of the Constitution that similarly imposes a sort of broad restraint on the government's ability to, to infringe the free exercise of religion. But, you know, there's no constitutional check on social pressure. There's no constitutional check on cultural trends. And that is part of what we hope the report will aim at, or it we intended the report to aim at that and to, to influence cultural trends. There's a hearts and minds aspect to religious liberty, very much there is for, for the, the pro-life concerns that the, the bishops are so active on this week, on the March for Life Week. So we, what we, if you look at the recommendations we have in the report for how to, to sort of counteract these threats, some of them are legal, you know, tell your representatives in Congress so-and-so, uh, but some of them are cultural um, for the attacks on houses of worship one. We say, we people of faith need to be examples of you know, a society free of hatred. For threat, we identify suppression of religious speech on marriage and, and sexual difference. You know, we, one of the recommendations is, you know, here are some resources about how to speak with both charity and truth on, on those issues. So that in in your day to day life, you can model a culture that the, demonstrates the value of free speech and and charity and compassion toward each other. So there's there's this cultural trend, um, cultural element of the report and of of what's going on that the you know the Constitution doesn't reach. So this report should have kind of a a broad appeal or appeal to different people, probably for different reasons, because like often there there are we're not the only group who, who issues a report like this. There are other religious liberty advocacy groups um, or other you know, think tanks or policy shops who, who publish reports. But this one, one of the things about it that's, but a lot of those are often sort of more geared towards if you're sort of already like inside the beltway or you're interested in these sorts of things. But this, on the one hand, you have these recommendations that would be just for the the engaged citizen but also we're hoping that this is going to be like kind of a one-stop place where you know staffers or in congressional staffers and, and different people who are already kind of professionally involved in this sort of work will, will understand where the bishops what the bishops concerns are um, could you just say a little bit about that about like kind of the broad reach that you hope that this will have um, and, or, and how you hope the report will be used uh, by kind of different audiences. They're different. They're, yeah, different audiences might look at different parts of the of the report. Yeah. So we, when we started, when we came up with this, the idea for this report, or when the committee came up with the idea, and we 
try to figure out what kind of report it was going to be. You know, there are other reports in this space. On the same day that we released the report, uh, on the 16th, you know, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty released their annual Religious uh, Freedom Index, which is a very different kind of report. It's a, a summary of polling and surveys they've, uh, they do on opinions about religious liberty. And that's sort of a fact-finding exercise. So, you know, we, we the Beckett Fund, found <clears throat> people of faith this year feel that they are less welcome than before in, in the public square. This, what, what we've done is not so much a fact-finding exercise because we, it, it's, it's all, this is all publicly available information. We've just tried to package it and, and sort of analyze it. I mean, one of the main goals of the report was to demonstrate the breadth and severity of the problems facing religious liberty in America. I think it's easy, especially for for people who work in policy, who are just kind of dealing with what comes across their desk each day, to lose the forest for the trees and um, not be able to take a, a, a measure of what is going on with religious liberty. When you when people, you know, Hill staff, congressional leaders, people who work at advocacy organizations look at the report, you know, part of our hope is that they think, oh, wow, put with this all put into perspective, this really does warrant more attention from us. This really does require some renewed effort. And for the average citizen, the parishioner who, who cares about religious liberty, we also want it to be uh, wanted to provide a a reliable, accurate commentary and portrayal of what's going on with religious liberty, and and a a view from from the bishops. This is what the bishops think about religious liberty and what's been going on. Um, you know, it's easy to find hot takes if you go on Twitter or whatever. But it's harder to find a take that you can, where you can be confident that it is, you know, truly Catholic, and that's that's what we're trying to do here: is offer a, a, a truly Catholic view on on religious liberty in the U.S. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just looking at the uh, some of the resources linked in this, um, and one of them is a guide provided by uh, H- uh, Homeland Security of protecting houses of worship. And it's filled with all sorts of different helpful, just very practical, like self-assessment of your your security protocol and how to how to really look at what can we do in this church, parish, whatever, to really protect people and the threats that might be possible. And yeah, it, it's really practical. I'm curious about uh, if if there's any anything in here related to prayer or. Any encouragement for people to, I mean, because that's part of it, too, is um, the the courage, the internal courage, right? The pastoral issue of like, oh, my goodness, I might not want to go to Mass because of this threat that could be possible in my parish. So just curious if the committee discussed that as a linking or providing that in the report. Yeah, the recommendation, one of the recommendations about the attacks on houses of worship issue um, is to pray for peace. Praying for for the courage to attend mass, you know that I think we'd endorse that idea too. There's certainly a certain degree of courage involved 
in standing up for religious liberty. There's a courage related to physical threats, uh, your physical safety, which is very real. There's also the, the courage to stand up to social pressure. You know, we run into that all the time, right? So the, the report does not sort of uh, refer Catholics to a prayer for courage. I think it's sort of implicit in, in what, we're, what we're asking people to do. Every time you stand up for, for religious belief in, in the U.S. or abroad, you know, against the, the very hostile cultural forces arrayed against religion, there's a, an element of courage in that, um, which ultimately benefits from, from prayer. In terms of integrating spirituality and stuff like that into the report, it might just be something we do more of, you know, building more into that for next year. That's a good idea. One thing, one other question about the report, just say a little bit for someone who might not be as familiar with the way we operate. There's a couple of things that would seem to be missing that are not missing. <laughs> you know, there's no talk about like China or Nigeria or Nicaragua, places where people of faith are, are violently persecuted. Um, and there's, you know, everything you named, it, it says like religious liberty in the U.S., but you didn't talk about like, you only talked about Congress, federal agencies. And right. So maybe just explain why that has to do with the scope of what the USCCB Committee for Religious Liberty is. Yeah. So it's, I think, important to note the, especially the, the limitation with regard to international issues, because, you know, speaking of sort of hot Twitter takes, one can be forgiven for thinking that supporters of religious freedom in America feel that they've got it as bad as anyone else anywhere. And that's just obviously not the case. We are incredibly blessed for all the problems we have. We are incredibly blessed to live here where we have this rich legal cultural tradition of respecting religious liberty. The USCCB committee for religious liberty was formed with the, the specific focus on domestic religious liberty issues. International religious liberty issues are handled by the Committee on International Justice and Peace, and we work with them when religious liberty issues arise abroad. Um, but it's not this committee's purview to address international problems, um, either in practice or in the scope of the report. So uh, we, we certainly would direct readers or anyone who, who cares about religious liberty to note truly how awful things are in some other countries and how badly they need our prayers and our help. With regard to, you know, we don't talk about states, really, um, state-level actions in the report. We, there is a bit of treatment of those where they, you know, a bunch of states have done something and it becomes this national trend or where something happened in a state or a city, and it became like an issue of national importance. You know, when it crosses that threshold into a national or a federal issue, that's when the Committee for Religious Liberty gets involved. At the state level, there are the state Catholic conferences, and they they handle state level issues. It's just not 
Well, first of all, USCCB is a, a national body, right? So we just don't, the, not only with religious liberty, but with other issues, really our, our operations are limited to national or federal issues. It's so state, local issues, while there are tons of religious liberty things happening at that level, they generally don't, they're not in the report because they're just not within the scope of what our committee does. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. And kind of as a follow-up, I still see a lot of people on the issue of abortion saying, since the Dobbs decision, everything's moving back to the states. And But this is a prime example of these threats where, you know, at the federal level, there still are is a lot that we need to do in the area of preventing, stopping abortion and protecting uh, unborn children and their mothers and families. So could you just comment on that real quick? I mean, the need still for federal, national-level pro-life efforts. Sure. Like you said, it's true that Dobbs shifted the, the primary sort of sphere of debate over abortion from Congress to the states. But that is not to say that Congress can simply wash its hands of this or that we need can possibly or that we can possibly stop paying attention to what federal agencies are doing with regard to abortion. For example, the Supreme Court recently agreed to hear a case uh, over conflict between Idaho's law on abortions, which you know, restricts them to certain circumstances where um, in relevant part, the life of the mother is, is at risk. Uh, a conflict between that law and the current administration's interpretation of a federal law, which they say means re- requires hospitals to perform abortions in a broader area, a broader set of circumstances. Federal agencies are still doing things that impact the states on abortion. Uh, Congress is still considering bills that impact the states on abortion. We mentioned the Women's Health Protection Act in the in the report. You know that is a bill proposed in Congress that would, you know, go far beyond what Roe had imposed, creating a national right to abortion on demand up until the moment of birth. Um, it's a religious liberty issue because it also goes out of its way to eliminate any defenses that people can could bring. Um, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So, you know, Congress is still up to no good. And uh, on the flip side of that coin, Congress, the pro-life members of Congress need to be up to good. They need to be taking measures to protect the unborn and to protect mothers, to, to create a culture where being a mother is easier, where we support mothers. So... Sure, there's a renewed emphasis on um, state-level bills, state-level actions um, that are newly relevant in the wake of Dobbs, but there's still a lot happening at the federal level on abortion. And if people just tune that out, you know, uh, it would be shooting, you know, shooting the pro-life movement in the foot. Well, I think that we're probably ready to wrap up, and I know people have places to go because this is such a busy time around the bishops conference um like you said with the march for life coming up um so we'll go ahead and wrap up yep no i was just gonna note in january 22nd remember is a day of prayer and fasting for life so don't forget monday is also you know 
March for Life's happening this Friday, but lots of events going on and mm-hmm. prayers and all sorts of things all over the country. Mm-hmm. Well, Dan, thanks for joining us and thanks for sharing about the report. Um, it's I think it's it really is a really great resource. Um, it's probably one of the best things we've put out in a long time. So um, I think everything looks it's it's very helpful. Yeah. Well done. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. Aaron is talking as if he wasn't involved in this, but he was and uh, very intensely. And it was really a, a required a lot of effort from a lot of people here at the conference and a lot of support from our bishops. Um, so we're very, very grateful um, for all the help we got. And you can find the report at probably the easiest place to find it is just to go to our webpage, www.usccb.org slash freedom. Uh, and then it's there's a link to it right there. The, the actual URL is too long to share on the podcast, but if you just go to <laughs> usccb.org slash freedom, uh, you can link to it right there at the top. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. (laughs) ¶¶